Well, we've seen a couple of weeks ago, it's actually been about three weeks since we've been in the Gospel of John. I've been out of town. We had National Day of Prayer last week. So anyway, in chapter 18, basically, especially as we entered into verse uh, 25, it was where we closed the last time we met, you've got basically three perspectives, three, three dilemmas that people are trying to to weigh out, and really what it boils down to, and it's what man struggles with today, what do we do with Jesus? And people have preconceived notions, people have desires, people have desires not to do anything with Jesus, but everybody needs to make that determination in what they are going to do with Jesus. Because again, there's this reality of truth as a person reads in the Bible, as somebody shares with somebody the Lord Jesus Christ, there's the power of the Holy Spirit that lends to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And so it demands a decision. Just, just the Holy Spirit will demand a decision in somebody's heart. Now, for quite a long time, I had that conviction myself before I was saved. And what I did was I, I took Jesus and I put him in a box. It was called religion. And and I would keep this box locked up, and I would take it out and open it up every Sunday morning for an hour. But the problem is, I went back to bed. It didn't have my heart, didn't have my ear, didn't have my mind. And when that hour was up, I'd put them back in the box and shove them back in the closet and go about my life living in the flesh according to what my desires were. And the majority of the people who are immersed in religion do just exactly the same thing. Others, they choose to try to ignore, but the problem is he keeps knocking on the door of their soul. And th- that, that causes conviction, and so you see the, the outlashing of it, and you see the people who will attack you when you try to share your faith, or even just the name of Jesus Christ is mentioned. And so we have three perspectives here, three perspectives of what we are to do with Jesus Christ. The first one, we'll back up a little bit, verses 25 and 27. The first perspective is from the Apostle Peter. And from the Apostle Peter's mindset, it's all about what he is able to do to Jesus. But unfortunately now, the Lord's got him in a place where he's trying, I'm sorry, he's having to face certain realities. It says in verse 25, Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a a rooster crowed. Had to be a really hard thing when he heard that rooster crow, because it was at that point he was seeing himself very clearly for who he was. And so what is Peter going to do with Jesus? Well, he had said what he was going to do with Jesus. He said that he would defend the Lord, that he would fight for the Lord, and he would never leave nor forsake the Lord. But then there's that crowing of the rooster, the crowing of the rooster that had to penetrate very deep within his heart that didn't so much show him the reality of who the Lord is, but the reality of who he is. And isn't that the first step to a right relationship with Jesus Christ? You coming to the proper perspective of the reality of who you are. Because again, salvation 
we, we speak about receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, well, we do need to submit ourselves to Jesus as Lord and Savior. No doubt about that. Not denying that, but I'm never going to properly do that until I come to the understanding I'm a sinner. The reality of who I am and the shortcomings that I have. Again, both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ came preaching the doctrine of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So there must be the knowledge of my sinful nature. There must be the desire to repent of that. But then again, I can't just leave it there. Then I must submit myself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter, he had an improper perspective of himself. Since he had an improper perspective of himself, he had an improper perspective of Jesus Christ. Again, thinking that he could do for Christ, he could die for Christ, with actuality, Christ was in the process of doing that for him. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So you notice how, how he words it. See, it's kind of interesting. You look at the Apostle Peter in the Gospels, and you're just thinking, is this guy ever going to get it? And then you look at the epistles, Peter's epistles, the letters that he wrote, and you say, that guy got it. That guy understood it. There was a lot of error that went on, a lot of mistakes, a lot of improper perceptions, but Peter did get it, because it says again in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3, for Christ, offered, <laughs> for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And if you look in his epistles, many times he puts himself in the same place as his audience, because he understood I'm no better than anybody else. I'm no better than... Here I am. I'm the Apostle Peter. I'm the one. I was part of the inner circle of the 12. I made the 12, but I also made the, the top three, if you will. The amazing things that the Lord did. I was front and center to these things. But through all those lessons that he was teaching, without the Holy Spirit, I could never properly perceive the point that he was trying to get across. And then came his death and... Peter could say, I really messed that one up, but I learned a very hard lesson, and God revealed to me who I really am and the limitations of, of, of my abilities, and man, I hit rock bottom. We'll see rock bottom coming in a couple of chapters here in the Gospel of John. But as I did, as I was humbled in the sight of the Lord, then he came and he lifted me up. And then there came that day of Pentecost, as the Lord promised, as he said it was going to come, and I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you see Peter standing up. It's then that you see a changed man. He stands up, and thousands of people come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is he doing? Well, if you look at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, when he stands up and speaks, you see the Holy Spirit. And we can never get away from this because we're filled with the Holy Spirit and the church and the Holy Spirit moves through the church. And as we saw in John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You hear me repeating that all the time because this is a constant reality within the body of Christ. We see it time and time again in the book of Acts. As I'm teaching here in the Gospel of John on Wednesday morning, I'm, I'm teaching in the book of Acts, and I'm seeing these parallels and this reality that is going on. And I experience these things myself, but also see them going on in society, convicting the world of sin. The world doesn't like to be convicted of sin. And, and as they're convicted of sin, as these things um, 
touch deep within their soul, you see the reaction there that is there. Convict the world of sin, of righteousness. They know that the righteous is not themselves, that there is a God out there, and the world realizes that. But since they don't want to acknowledge sin, they don't want to acknowledge the existence of a Savior. And then of, of judgment. The world knows that it's going to be judged, so it's eat, drink, and party, for tomorrow we die. They realize that this is all that there is going to be apart from Christ. But anyway, my point is, is that Peter, Peter ended up getting it. Later, when Peter received the Holy Spirit, he was then able to gain the proper perspective of the Lord and glorify his name in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 through 25, because all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The, gla- the grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so what is Peter going to do with Jesus? He's learning some hard lessons here. Then the second perspective is the religious community. The Jews must consider what they are going to do with Jesus, and that's the theme of what we'll be looking at here tonight, both the Jews and then we'll be looking at secular society. But nonetheless, they're trying to make the determination of what they are going to do with Jesus. Well, in the Jews, we'll see cults, And the Jews will see religion void of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we can see just based upon what the Jews did in order to kill off Christ is the same thing that these organizations or individuals do and how they kill off Christ even as they have the potential in a body of people who are there. Have you ever had anybody come up to you and say, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. We'll call that a fish jumping in the boat. Are are you properly prepared for that? I I remember I had a young lady come up to me and say, I was convicted by the message on Sunday, and I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Now, my first response, not response, but my first thought within my mind, well, wait a minute, we've got to go through a process here. You can't just do that. But... See, that, that's religion, you know, when we think that we have to go through our preconceived processes. See, it, it's all about God meeting this person. In actuality, that person that wanted to receive the Lord, they probably didn't know it or realize it, but they already had. They already had. They just needed to make that outward expression of what Christ has already done in their heart. And so we have to be real careful that we don't kill off Christ in, in people's lives. And so the Jews, the Jews are that outward expression of self-righteousness. It's the righteousness of man that is based upon works, traditions, doctrines, and anything else that can be contrary to the Bible and contrary to the Lord. Look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Paratorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the Paratorium, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover." Here they are, they're going to kill Messiah, and they're worried about being defiled. I mean, they're, they're, and let's just take Messiah out of the equation. They're about to have a man murdered. And so do you see the ridiculousness of all of that? Do you see how they completely have no perspective of what is going on and what they're doing? How their flesh has overshadowed their perception of what is right and what is proper. The paratorium is kind of cool. I've been there. Um, The rocks that Jesus stood upon, I stood upon those rocks. It's in the 
Temple Mound, in the area of the Temple Mound, it was kind of a garrison, if you will, where the Roman soldiers would be, and they were using it. It's early in the morning, so they were using it as kind of this, um, th- this place to meet uh, Pilate halfway. It was a place of the Gentiles, and they themselves would want to render themselves unclean. And so somehow, some way, we're not told of this because it's still early in the morning. More than likely, it's probably 6 o'clock in the morning. They've made arrangements for this very moment. And so as they have made arrangements for this very moment, we see the plans. But we're also going to get, when we get to Pilate, we're going to see some very interesting things in what the Lord was doing in his life as well. And so God desires that his word and our obedience to come together and that we would glorify him through that. But what they're doing here is what the Jews are doing here. They're going against their own laws in order to develop charges against Jesus. And now they're trying to make it official because the Jews did not have the authority to put anybody to death. At least they're using that as an excuse. Because who is it that they're going to have to face eventually when they crucify Christ? They're going to have to face the people. These are the people just a few days earlier, Hosanna. You know, they, they're saved now, save now. And so they were always concerned about the people. That's why they arrested Jesus at night. That's why they're having this trial at night. They don't want to start a, a riot. Remember, it's the Passover. All males of military age are in town. And so if there's a riot, there's going to be a riot of riots. Not only are they concerned about what the people may do to them, those who are of Christ or at least perceive him as being a prophet, if there is a riot with these people, then Rome would put down the riot and it just would not end up well regardless. Their charge, their charge is blasphemy. Now, if their charge was really blasphemy, they ought not to have turned him in. God told them, if anybody commits blasphemy, Leviticus 24, 16, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The stranger as well as him who is born in the land, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. This was to be a group thing because this guy has offended God and God is using his people to bring punishment upon him. So if Jesus Christ blasphemed, regardless of what Rome said, now keep in mind, Rome says you guys can't put anybody to death. You have to bring them and charges have to be brought and a trial has to go on. God says if somebody blasphemes, then you are to stone him. Now, who do you follow here? I mean, who is it that if you're really of God, do you pay mind to what is being said here? Now, you need to see the hypocrisy in this because it was earlier that they caught this woman in adultery in the very act. And what did they do? They, they drug her to Pilate in order to bring charges against her? No, they thought nothing of dragging her out into the street and they were prepared to stone her to death. And so why would it be any different with Jesus? Why, why would they care about this? Well, when the peoples come and would approach them and say, why are you hanging that man? Hey, it's not me, it's them. What can we do? It, it's Rome. And so in order to cast blame off of themselves, they're trying to put it on to Rome. And so they could have done all of this in secret and to a degree that they they did, but they have an agenda here. Any religion 
that kills Christ or desires to kill Christ. And what I mean by that is, is to kill off the proper knowledge of who Jesus Christ is in order to fulfill either a worldly or a religious agenda. They have to do it openly at some point. Christ, when he was crucified, was crucified openly. Now you have the cults, you have the Mormons. They have to do something with Jesus and they have to do it openly. He can't be the biblical Jesus or their doctrine falls apart. And so they can't just ignore Jesus because if they do, well, people know of him. They know they've heard of him and all, so they'll go investigate and they lose control. And so what do they do? They have to kill off Christ in the hearts of their people. They misrepresent who Jesus is. They present a false Christ. And so in the Mormons, and I'm not an expert in Mormon doctrine, but they present Jesus Christ as being the spiritual brother of Lucifer and through a sexual relationship between the Father and the Virgin Mary, and they just kind of go upside down, biblically speaking. But they have to develop, the, the Islam has to develop something concerning Christ. Well, he was just a prophet. And so as they do these things, they're killing off who Christ truly is in the heart of the people who are followers. And so that's what's happening here. We have to kill off Christ. And that's pretty big for them to kill off Christ. And again, I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually, if you will. But here we have this man who's done mighty miracles, these things that cannot be denied. But if I can prove that he was a blasphemer, he's just somebody who has been doing mighty works and has been found to be a fraud once more. And so they have to have this perfect balance of secrecy yet openness. And what they were hoping to do is to arrest him, bring charges, have him tried and convicted so that once they have that in secrecy, then they could publicly crucify him. And it's basically what they did. And so as far as Christ's crucifixion, three reasons why it had to be done. The first was, well, for the religious leaders, it would be a public display of their victory over this false messiah. What were they yelling at Christ as he was upon the cross? If you're really the son of God, save yourself. What did the thief on the cross, he kind of got involved in that. Hey, if you're really the son of God, save yourself and, and save me too. Because just you got to cover your bases just in case. And so they, they did so as they put him upon the cross. How could he have been Messiah if we were able to crucify him? Secondly, and it's the answer to that first question, it was the desire of the father so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. That's the love of God displayed to all of humanity of Christ taking the, the, the sins of all of mankind upon himself. And he did so, obviously, in a very public way. Had to be crucifixion. It couldn't be stoning. Why couldn't it be stoning? Well, we looked at it as we were building up to Easter. We looked at Psalm 22 on Sunday morning. He couldn't have been stoning. Stones would have broken bones. And what is described in Psalm 22 is crucifixion upon the cross. So that was essential. And then thirdly, there's the desire of the plan, a public display of victory over sin and victory over death. And so this has had to happen. So they believe they're manipulating a situation. We can stand third party and we can see God's plan coming to fruition God is using these people and their schemings for his glory. All things work together for the good. 
Now we come to the third perspective, that of the secular government of Pontius Pilate and Rome. We have Pilate, a man who's got a real dilemma here in the Lord. Whatever his decision is going to be, there's going to be consequences. If he lets him go, he's going to have a political problem to deal with. Now you have to understand Rome as they would go in and they would conquer a nation, Israel for instance, they come into Jerusalem, we'll say, they would usually take the leading citizens, they would take the governors, the mayors, whoever they were, and they would execute them all. They would execute the lieutenants and all of this. Here with Israel, they kept the high priests, they would usually allow them to continue to practice their religions, religious system. Then they would go and they would instill in leaders their people, their puppet governments. That's why we see Herod. Herod was an Edomite, but he was put there as king by the hand of Caesar in order to maintain uh, order in the area. Pilate was Rome's representative. He was put there to keep Rome informed of what was going on in case uh, insurrection would rise up or whatever it might be. And so what Pilate is there for is also to keep the peace, even if it takes a heavy hand. So he's willing to do that, but he's also a politician, and to his disgust, he's having to enter into a political relationship with these people as well. Because probably at that moment, he's probably outnumbered. I'm sure they sent reinforcements for the Passover. But again, you've probably got close to 2 million men of military age. A 2 million man army is formidable. So he's concerned about that, understanding the power that the priests have to rile these people up. If he convicts, he has his conscience to deal with, and possibly Caesar. Because, see, if you're, going to want to, if you're going to keep peace in the land, you have to have a system that works. And part of the system that works is similar to the system that we have, our judicial system that we have. And so you have to play that out. And although he'll overrule it at times, he's got to be careful here. Because if he just kills Christ, then again, he may have an uprising of the people. And that's what he's concerned about because he doesn't want to have shame of face before this man who is really his father-in-law, but Caesar. So, you know, when things aren't going right, you know, what did he tell his son-in-law? What did he tell Pilate? Go over there. I don't want to hear from you again. You just make sure everything's taken care of. If things aren't taken care of and I got to get involved, there's going to be problems. So it's just kind of that mindset. And so he's dealing with the situation, but he's got a dilemma to deal with here. Now, Pilate makes no mistake about it. He's no friend of the Jews. We see this in Luke 13, verse 1. It says, There were present at that season some who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So to kill people wasn't that big of a deal, but he had to do it in a way that he's not going to cause an uprising. Well, if you recall, after 911, we had that early warning system where if things were, I don't remember, but if they were yellow, then there was a certain degree of probability of a terrorist attack all the way up. If they were red, that was a high degree of probability of terrorist attack. Well, things are red right now. And so he doesn't want to rile them up any more than he has to. Tradition tells us that Caesar removed Pilate because of his murderous rule you see, if Jesus was guilty, it would be nothing of Pilate for him to condemn him. But again, 
He's got to do this in a diplomatic manner. He's got to appease the people. He's got to appease the religious leaders because they can rile up the people. And so he's got this situation that he's going to have to deal with effectively. Now, when there was a trial, a Roman trial, there will be four critical elements that are necessary for this trial to be legal, four things that we'll see that Pilate is going to follow. There would need to be the charges, there would need to be the examination of the evidence, there would need to be the necessity of hearing from the defense, and then there would be the verdict that was rendered all lending to the reality of the event, as I see it, that John is explaining these things in detail. They're not just, it would have been easy for him to make something up, but not go into this much detail, not go into this much detail from a Roman perspective. And so the first thing we have is the charges, verses 29 and 30. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. And so we know the charge is blasphemy, and it would mean nothing to Pilate, though. Luke tells us of the false charges, though, that the Jews gave concerning Jesus. And so in their mind, they have brought up this charge of blasphemy so they can legitimately crucify this man. But they understand before Pilate, blasphemy is just not going to mean anything. And so Luke chapter 23, verse 2 says, And they began to accuse him, began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. Well, the Roman mind, this is treason. John MacArthur said of these charges, Had Jesus been guilty of any one of these charges, Pilate would have known of it, and would have arrested Jesus and have him executed long, long ago. But contrary to these charges that were brought to him, we know Jesus taught and willingly paid taxes. He taught taught Peter that it's necessary to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Now, if he didn't do that, number one, it would be sin, But number two, he would bring guilt upon himself and his execution would have been, wasn't for the sinful nature of mankind because he didn't pay his taxes. But that's not true. Secondly, when his admirers wanted wanted to make him king by force, Jesus always prevented it. Jesus was not to be revealed as king of kings and lord of lords until he achieved, he always was, but not revealed until he achieved victory over our sins. Really, on the cross, he was crowned as king of mankind with that crown of thorns. It was probable that this trial, as I stated earlier, was previously planned. Again, the time is somewhere around six o'clock, between four and six o'clock in the morning. But the thing about it is, why do we have this seemingly disagreement and argument between Pilate and the religious leaders? I'm not going to get up at 4 o'clock just because of a group of people that I rule over asked me to be there. You've got to have pretty good reason. Well, if they have this man who's perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes, calling himself a king, and okay, and they just want to kill this guy. I don't have a problem killing Jews. And so we're worried about the people rising up. Okay, I'll be there. But the problem is he seems to have a change of mind, and we see why in the book of Matthew Matthew 27, verse 19. 
says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. For some reason, we don't get all of the details, that struck Pilate to his heart. Now all of a sudden, this man who, okay, well, if, if that's how we need to do it, I'll be there early, we'll convict him and do away with him. Now all of a sudden, he's not so quick to do so. Notice he's not saying no, but he's not really saying yes, and we'll see that throughout, because as the Jews are trying to put it on Pilate, Pilate is going to be trying to put it back on the Jews, as far as the responsibility for the crucifixion of Christ. And so this man, there, there's something there from Pilate's perspective. There's something there concerning this man, because again, even if he's innocent, as long as they, can, they got charges here, he can put him to death. He's done it before. But there's just something about this man. And again, it's the same dilemma so secular society has today from their perspective as they examine Jesus Christ. There are no legitimate charges. But if you're new to this planet and you're looking at society, you would think this Jesus, this Jesus has got to be some kind of plague to society. Why do people hate him so much? Why is he so detest amongst secular society today? I mean, our schools will teach the philosophies of Marx and Lenin and Hitler and everybody else, but they won't even mention the name of Jesus Christ. This guy must be bad. There must be something there. Our courts will defend the rights of murderers, child molesters, and pornographers, but they won't defend Jesus or they won't defend the church there's got to be something there. Something must really be bad. Our society is to be tolerant of seemingly any belief system that comes down the pike, but when it comes to the church and it comes to the Lord, it seems like they're willing to stand strong against it. Seems like we get certain times when things get better and things get worse, but I've read to the end of the book, it gets a lot worse. God uses these things for his glory. They have a big problem. It's a problem that Pilate didn't fully understand, but he had. It's the problem that our society has as well, in that you can take a society out of the church, but you'll never be able to take the church out of society until the hand of God does. And then it's going to get really bad. It's going to get really bad. Now, you've got a little bit of a shorter picture of that. They crucify Christ, and in about 40 years, it got really bad. Rome came in and massacred the city and tore down the temple. What do you think is going to happen within that seven-year period when the church is removed? Now, the Holy Spirit cannot be removed because the Holy Spirit is God. God is omnipresent. But what happens when the agency through which the Holy Spirit works through is removed, when the church is raptured? There's no more conviction of sin. There's no more conviction of righteousness and no more conviction of, of judgment. And what does that mean? That means that the flesh is going to run rampant. And then you have the instigator, the antichrist, that is going to be encouraging in that. The devil is going to be having free reign. If you have yet to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you better do so soon, because this day is definitely coming. And then 31 and 32, the examination of the evidence against Jesus. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So they're kind of playing ping pong with him. They're throwing him back and throwing him back and forth. 
verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, saying, by which death he would die. Remember when he said, if I be lifted up. So he's spoken of his crucifixion. So you say, Pastor Mike, where's the evidence in there? Well, the problem is there is no evidence. There's no evidence whatsoever. But we do have the defense in verses 33 through to verse 37. Then Pilate entered the paratorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you calling yourself a king? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. I was born to be a king. And for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate's response, and you can see that he's pretty much flabbergasted here. Pilate says to him, verse 38, what is truth? And I can, I can just see him kind of rolling his eyes. And then he said this, and when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. That would be the verdict. And how would you like to be on trial for your life and have the judge or the jury stand up and say, what is truth anyway? Truth is essential. Truth is absolutely important. And it's so much more so important that humanity, that mankind knows truth. That we know of the existence of truth and what that truth is, spiritually, beyond a shadow of a doubt, but just to be able to exist in harmony in a society, there's certain truths that have to be acknowledged and followed in order for that to happen. So Pilate's point here is, if you are the king of truth, then you're no threat to Caesar, you're then innocent. Society looks into the face and cares more about circumstances and personal situations than to consider the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And so, I just want to close with these few thoughts concerning truth based upon the importance that it is. Certain things that we need to consider in our faith, but certain realities that we need to see within any society that they need to come to an understanding in order to coexist with one another. First thing, and this is just scratching the surface, truth is singular. Truth is singular, whole, and consistent. Problem, we live in a post-modern society. What does that mean? That means that Sean back there, he can make a determination on what he believes to be true. I can make a decision on what I believe to be true. Bill, he can make his decisions on what he believes to be true. Well, the problem is, that just doesn't work. That's silly. That's foolish. Look at the state of our society today. Look the direction that a postmodern society is leading to. So somewhere along the lines, they believe, well, our, our, our true and established traditions of this nation are being taken away. They're being torn apart one by one, one after another. And what's happening to our society today? We can't even elect a president anymore. I mean, you can't elect a president without riots and, and things. That was one of the beauties of our nations. 
We're on truths that once the people speak, then that's the reality of what's going to be happening for at least the next four years. That doesn't exist anymore. Do you think that's going to get better? Or do you think that's going to get worse? What we saw, yeah, what we saw after Trump was elected is going to get worse. And it's going to go as far as civil war? I don't know. I don't know. Truth is singular, it's whole, it's consistent, it's not fragmented. Every truth is related with every other truth. All truths must fit together. If you study creation as the Bible states it, then it all starts with a great truth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That is a truth statement. Matter of fact, that's a statement from which the whole Bible stands upon. It's foundational to the whole Bible. If that falls apart, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the whole Bible falls apart. The whole Bible is not true. It may have some truths here and there, but as far as being completely truthful, it's not. Not just because of that statement, but it's so many other things that are built upon that statement. So where's the attack against your Christian faith today? Creation. God didn't create it. There's this big bang and so on and so forth. It, it had come up against the foundational truth of the Bible. If they can do damage to that truth, if they can even bring doubt into that truth, so much more falls apart. But that being true, every other known truth will then fit in, um, fit in its place as one truth is united with another. And what I mean by that is, if I can believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that he spoke these things into existence, is it such a big deal to believe anything else that occurred in the Bible? Is it such a big deal to believe that Jesus Christ, that God could come, that he could live amongst man, and he could die for our sins? Is it such a big thing that God who created me, who created you, created all that we've seen just simply by the spoken word, is able to change your life? Is it hard to believe that there is an afterlife, that there is a heaven and there is an eternity? I mean, if God is able to create everything that we see just by speaking it into existence, can you imagine the magnitude of the power, the magnitude of the knowledge and the wisdom that exists there? That's our God. That's our God. And people will try to attack your God at that truth. All other belief systems and actuality are theories because they can't prove the truths that we are able to prove. Secondly, truth is objective and not subjective. We can find truth, we can observe truth, we can discuss truth. Truth can be reinforced, but it cannot be changed, and it is not left up to your interpretation. It is to be seen and received it's not to be redefined, changed, or manipulated. Notice that the Bible tells us truth and does not leave room for your opinion. Notice in the Bible, choose this day who you will, will serve, but as far as truths, nowhere in the Bible does it ask, so what do you think? Does that sound okay to you? No, in the beginning, God, he's making a truth statement. He's not even asking you to believe it. He's just telling this is reality and everything else is springing forth from here. And so as far as this truth, it's objective. Subjective means, well, you know, okay, well, it looks kind of good. We need to change this and we need to change that. No, objective is, oh, wow, that, that's true. And so as, as, we, as we 
come upon truth in that manner, it just lends to the reality of, of what it is. Because if I can change truth, if I can manipulate truth, then there's something wrong with the fabric of what that really is. And there's nothing stable within our lives. It's essential that truth be objective in order that we have some sort of stability. Now, you can look at the mess that we have in immigration. Regardless of where your standpoint is on immigration, the fact of the matter is we've chosen to ignore certain truths. And these truths that we've ignored is the truth that is our law. Because we were able to get cheap labor from Mexico, we decided to turn our eyes away from people coming into this country. These people came into the country, did the jobs that a lot of us didn't want to do. Now, I know there was a lot of people that came in that were, um, that were criminals and all of that, but there were some good people that came in, but they came in illegally, but we ignored that. And they came in and they settled and they grew roots and they had children and so on and so forth, and now we're going to kick them out? I don't really see it even as being their fault. I see it as being our fault. We've ignored the truth of sticking to the law. And when you start ignoring laws, things start to fall apart. It needs to be changed. It needs to be reworked. A law needs to be set, and a law needs to be uh, followed through. But if you want to look at whose fault all this is, a lot of us need just simply, and I mean by us Americans, need to look in the mirror as we have chosen to ignore these certain truths. We see the repercussions that we have. Proverbs Uh, 30 verse 5 every word of God is pure he is a shield to those who put their trust in him and then thirdly apart from the perspective of the Bible not apart from it from the perspective of the Bible all truth comes from God all truth comes from God how can any truth perceive from any person again since it's not subjective that would be impossible And so what that tells me is my philosophies, my worldview, it needs to be based upon, well, the center of truth. It needs to be what we have, the Word of God. Our legal system, it needs to be based upon the Word of God. I'm going to start a country, call it the United States of America, it needs to be based upon the Word of God. Now, as these things, our legal system, uh, our social system, the existence of our country, as they were founded upon the Word of God, didn't things work out pretty good? Because it was founded upon truth. But now, as man has manipulated the truth and changed the truth, so that that would mean that it's no longer truth, we have the situations that we have today. And then lastly, the truth that comes from God has been embodied in Jesus Christ. He made that very clear in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And that, that is the ultimate truth. Because without that truth, what else really matters? Not that all else isn't true. I mean, that is true. But without that truth, truth does not matter. What, what, what does it matter in the beginning, God, if I'm just going to perish? If I'm just no longer going to exist? What does that matter? What does it matter if, if, if all humanity is just sinful and is going to be condemned to hell? What does that really matter? But you enter in the truth of Jesus Christ into the equation, and now it may, all other truths make sense. All other truths fit together. Now I can boldly go about my life based upon the truth 
of Jesus Christ as he has displayed the love of God and the grace of God to all of humanity. Matter of fact, I can rejoice in the truth. And we have the truths of who God is, loving and compassion, but also judging the Holy Spirit, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And all of these truths I can warmly embrace because of the grace of God based upon the truth of who Jesus Christ is. It's the privilege that we have being children of Jesus Christ through faith. It's the privilege that we have, and it's that privilege that we need to hold on to every day of our lives. Because as this world is spinning out of control, we've been brought into the family of God, and it keeps us rooted and grounded in what is right and what is proper. It's what we have staked our lives. It's a truth that we have staked our lives and our futures upon. Father, we just thank you, Lord. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. But Lord, even as, as you stood before Pilate, you, you just spoke of, of who you are. and You weren't there to argue with him and all, and here's a man who, who just had absolutely no clue. And, and again, we see our society, we see our government, we see all even tied up as Pilate. What is truth? They, they just didn't, don't know. But Lord, man will never know until he comes into that saving knowledge of who you are. And so, Father, we just thank you and praise you that you have revealed these things to us. And I pray that through these truths that we would have hope for the day and hope for tomorrow. I pray, Father, that they would soothe our souls and strengthen our resolve to continue forward in your kingdom. And as they do, Father, we would just see you work glorious things through us. And so, Father, we just thank you and praise you for tonight. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed these truths to us for your glory. So, Lord, just go before us. We pray for the remainder of the week that, Lord, your hands would simply be upon the lives of us and our families, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Sunday morning, we're going to veer off once again for our study in Hebrews, and we're going to be celebrating Mother's Day. I have a Mother's Day message that I have prepared, so if you would like, Feel free to invite mom and dad and brothers and sisters and whoever else you're going to have over to your house this coming Sunday. And we're just going to rejoice in the ministry of a mom. All right? And then we're going to take, don't forget, don't show up, we're going to take Sunday night off. God bless you guys.